I remember driving to Denver to visit Tina's parents when our four children were younger. Uh, we'd take the middle seats out of the minivan, which is illegal, strap a 12-inch portable TV set onto a cooler, which is unwise, and we'd leave at dusk so we could drive the 997 miles straight through the night in 17 hours of drinking lots of coffee, which is absolutely crazy. But it was usually we were no further than St. Louis before the kids would ask, are we there yet? No, we're not there yet. Finish your movie, go to sleep, take your Benadryl, you know, whatever. <laughs> but today we're continuing our, our church's second 40-day adventure, following the radical Jesus. And no, we're not there yet. We're just a little over halfway through our life-changing season of growth that coincides with the historic observation of Lent. Our expectations are rooted in three cornerstone prayers. The first for ourselves and family, that we will experience Jesus in more personal and powerful ways. Secondly, for our five friends, that the Holy Spirit would touch those unchurched friends with the power of his love. Thirdly, for our church family and our communities that are represented, that God's kingdom and love and mercy and power and truth would would break through into our family and in our communities in the way that God knows we need. We're studying through the entire Gospel of Mark, reading two chapters a week. This week, chapters 7 and 8, in preparation for uh, my message that I've titled, Jesus Fully Revealed. And lastly, many of us are engaging intentionally in some act of humility and fasting. And for these, I'm, I'm grateful and encouraging you to stick with it. I'm, I'm glad to already hear the ways the Holy Spirit's moving uh, among us as we experience God's kingdom. We'd love to hear your story, so take an opportunity and write on the back of your Connect card uh, maybe the story about how God is moving in your life. We'd like to hear it. And a special shout-out to our podcast community. Uh, we'd love to hear from you. Um, you know, tell us who you are and where you live and what God's doing right now. You can email me, ben.hair, H-O-E-R-R, at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. Let's pray together. Lord, we are grateful at the brand new start of a brand new week that you give us life and breath and soundness of mind. For these gifts, we say thank you. This is the day that you have made. We'll rejoice in it and be glad because it's a gift from you. Jesus, we want to love you more fully and completely, and we pray that to that end, as we gather together, your Holy Spirit would be at work among us, not just here in the auditorium, but right next door in the nursery and in vineyard kids as well. Cause us to fall more deeply in love and be more radically and beautifully transformed to look like Jesus is our prayer in your name. Amen. Mark's Gospel, chapter 7, verses 1 to 23. Once again, we see the Pharisees and religious leaders from head, headquarters in Jerusalem are gathered around Jesus. Now, the Pharisees were Jewish rabbis who were very rigorous in their obedience to the law, as well as the oral traditions by which they interpreted and applied the law. Uh, there were only about a few thousand of them in number, but they were immensely influential on Jewish uh, culture and population, setting the general standard for both piety and purity. They had been offended that Jesus forgave sin, ate with sinners, refused to have his disciples fast, and violated the Sabbath law. Basically, they were just mad about everything. The issue now is uh, the failure of the disciples to ceremonially wash their hands before eating, and this meant that they and their food were unclean. They were not kosher. 
Now, once again, we see the radical Jesus reproved the prevailing religious system that uh, was really uh, interested in preserving and, and maintaining tradition and ritual. And Jesus refused to take a side in the raging religious debate. You know, religion always wants to know who's right, what side is right in the argument. And Jesus instead just went for the jugular in exposing the real issue. First, he asserted that uh, the Old Testament prophet was spot on about this moment and these men. We read together in Mark's Gospel, chapter 7, verse 6, that Jesus replied, You hypocrites! Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you, for he wrote, These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Their worship is a farce, for they teach man-made ideas as the commands of God. Now, a hypocrite was an actor. In theater, they hid behind a large, often full-length mask in order to portray a certain character. In other words, they put on a mask to hide their true heart. And so Jesus charged the religious leaders with a lack of congruity. That is, they were saying one thing and did another. They pretended or they acted to be people that they really weren't. And he pointed out in particular how they taught responsibility towards one's parents could be avoided by dedicating resources to God, calling it Corbin, devoted to God. And and so what happened is in this seemingly pious and religious act, the leaders actually violated the clear intent of the law that they professed to love. They were hypocrites. And the radical Jesus called them out because of it. Now, before we get too smug, let me ask, what is the most common charge levied today against Christians who, uh, by those who are outside the faith and outside the church? That we are hypocrites. Exactly. Now, in a study of Christianity's slipping image uh, reported in the book Unchristian, written by David Kinneman from the uh, Barna Group, he says uh, this, and I quote in the book, Among young non-Christians, 85% believe that present-day Christianity is hypocritical. I think it's healthy to ask ourselves as Christian leaders and practitioners, uh, is there congruity between what I profess to believe and practice? Is what I say I believe the way I really live? As followers of the radical Jesus, do my words and my works show that I really love God and love people? You see, we may identify ourselves as Christians. We may attend church or our small group regularly. We may even practice the disciplines of the faith, like Bible study and prayer and Even today, as we'll celebrate communion, we may write letters to the editor of Peoria Journal Star. We may protest at the state capitol against the gay marriage amendment. We may have some other Christian bumper sticker affixed to our vehicle. We may advocate for Judeo-Christian values in our children's schools. But do we really love God and love people? Sadly, just this week in the Peoria area, Christianity suffered a major setback when a missionary and church planter was charged with the brutal 
murder of his wife. And I'm not minimizing the unfathomable grief of the family, nor the questions that we all wrestle with. How could this possibly happen? But people all around this community are now amplified in their charge against Christianity as hypocritical. Someone that's a church planter and a missionary yet did this. How, how, and so with one sweep of, of opinion, we're all labeled as guilty hypocrites. I think the, the I.I. question that in, in the I.I. exam, that these, these moments of pause for introspection as we're coming through the Gospel of Mark that I would ask at this point is, am I being a hypocrite in any pocket of my life? Do I sidestep God's intention in loving him and loving others by my preoccupation with a particular religious tradition? Now, this dense passage in in the Gospel of Mark teaches us that when the kingdom of God comes, when it's at hand, all religious tradition is under critique and review. You see, the Jews had a long list of external identity markers, traditions, that proved that you were pious and pure. Uh, Circumcision, dietary and clothing restrictions, rules that regulated relationships and commerce and business, uh, Sabbath observations. Now, today, in this text, the washing of hands and pots and pans. And it was as if to say, if you really do these things, then it proves you're pious and you love God. And I would suggest that today, Christians everywhere are looking for external identity markers that prove one is really a believer. And so we have to ask, what is today's equivalent of hand washing? What do we look to in order to say, oh, you must really love God because you do and believe thus and so. Or you clearly don't love God because you uh, do and believe thus and so. You're in and you're not. You're holy and you're not. What are, what are the things we look to? What are our boundary markers? Well, I grew up in a church that had a long list of them. No criticism, but it's true. You were in if you didn't own a TV, if you didn't go to movies, if you didn't play cards, if women didn't wear slacks or jewelry or makeup, men cut their hair a certain way, if you avoided all other forms of outward worldliness and competition. Perhaps the boundary markers today are, you know, you must be a conservative Republican. You must stand for Israel or against abortion or legalization of pot. Maybe it's some other issue of personal piety. You know, you certainly couldn't be in if you drink alcohol or smoke cigarettes or occasionally a cigar or watch an R-rated movie or, by gosh, work at a casino. Maybe your markers are more theological. Uh, It's believing that women can't or can't can or can't teach or preach or hold a position in in the church, or all must speak in tongues as evidence of being filled with the Holy Spirit, or uh, one particular script for the end of the age and the return of Jesus. It can only happen one way. Every denomination, every church, every Christian probably has its top ten indicators, uh, identity markers of who's pious and what's pure. What are, the, what are the identity markers that you're holding on to today? Jesus actually teaches us in this passage that God is not concerned 
with unclean foods and unclean hands. Our external boundary markers, our religious traditions. Instead, Jesus said God is interested in our heart. The issue is not food. It's not hand washing. It's not any external item. We are the issue. Jesus said we make things clean or unclean. It's about the disposition of our hearts. Let's read together in verses 18 to 23 what Jesus said. Don't you understand? Can you see that food you put into your body can't defile you? Food does, doesn't go into your heart, but only passes through the stomach and then goes into the sewer. By saying this, he declared that every kind of food is acceptable in God's eyes. And then he added, it's what comes from inside that defiles you. For from within, out of a person's heart, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, wickedness, deceit, lustful desire, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. All these vile things come from within. They are what defile you. So Jesus radically shifted the battleground from externals to internals. He's not concerned with unclean hands, but rather an unclean heart, because from unclean, hypocritical hearts come unclean things. And then he gave that grocery list of sins as illustrative of what religious tradition can actually hide. We can engage in the external signs of cleanliness and purity and holiness and devotion to God, while inwardly our hearts can harbor sin and rebellion. And Jesus is showing us that when the kingdom comes, it's going to challenge external piety and expose our heart. And so the I-I question, the exam for all of us today is, what does Jesus see? When he looks at my heart. Chapter 7, verses 24 to 30. Jesus left his wide sweep through Galilee and he withdrew into Gentile territory. The text calls it the region of Tyre. When a desperate Syrian Phoenician woman approached him, she came begging for deliverance for her demonized daughter. And Jesus' response in verse 27 may have seemed initially rather harsh. Jesus said, first, I should feed my children, my own family, the Jews. It isn't right to take food from the children and throw it to the dogs. But the use of the word dog uh, was actually customary uh, among Jews as a reference to Gentiles who were outside the covenant. It was not necessarily derogatory uh, nor insulting. Jesus was basically saying, healing is the children's bread. The Jewish people who have been promised the Messiah are the ones who should eat the bread till they're full. And then interestingly, without disagreement or offense, the mother simply accepts his thesis that healing is the children's bread. And then she brilliantly argues that even when the children eat their bread, some crumbs fall to the floor where the dogs clean up after them. And it's a beautiful and powerful uh, illustration of persuasive, persevering, bold faith that refuses to take no for an answer. At whatever it cost, she wanted her daughter free. And Jesus was impressed 
with that kind of faith. And he released her daughter from the demon. Two things I see as a result. One, that uh, his authority, Jesus' authority as the warrior king, uh, is not culturally or socially, religiously, racially, or geographically bound. It, it knows no limits. And second, we see that in this culture, it, women were held inferior in every respect. But Jesus did not share this bias. In fact, he radically reached across the gender line, and he valued women as equals with men in every way. And that is beautiful and powerful. I ask myself, in what ways does my faith in Jesus need to grow more persevering and bold like this Syrian Phoenician woman? Now, still in largely Gentile territory, a deaf man with a speech impediment was brought to Jesus by his friends, and the text reads that they begged him to lay hands on the man and heal him. Jesus didn't want to cause a spectacle, so he took the man away from the crowd, and then he did something really strange. You remember it from reading this week in verses 33 to 35. He, Jesus, put his fingers into the man's ears, and then spitting on his own fingers, he touched the man's tongue. Looking up to heaven, he sighed and said, be open. Instantly, the man could hear perfectly, and his tongue was freed so he could speak plainly. Wow, dramatic and powerful. And the fact that a, a, a man who wasn't able to hear but spoke with an impediment could speak freely instantly is, is a much more dramatic healing because people don't learn how to speak uh, instantaneously. It's a process. So this was an incredibly powerful restorative act. But I just want to encourage you and say that, that, that this is not a healing formula. Okay. In fact, Jesus never employed a formula when he ministered healing. He ministered in each case as he was directed by the Father. And so the lesson really for us is to never allow ministry, whether that's healing or deliverance or counseling, a grieving parent or a struggling teenager or sharing with people how they can connect with God, never to allow ministry to become formulaic. Oh, well, you just do these three steps. Or, oh, you know, when I had that condition or experienced a similar circumstance, here's what I did. Because these short, bumper sticker, advice-filled approaches communicate disrespect for people and they reflect a failure to really listen and follow the leadership of the Holy Spirit at the moment. The radical Jesus did what he saw the Father doing in this moment. And so if we're going to follow the radical Jesus, we need a commitment. We need a commitment to hear from the Lord. He's calling. We need a commitment to hear from the Father and then courageously obey what he says. You don't stick your fingers in people's ears and spit on their tongue without being pretty darn sure that the Lord has directed you. (laughs) But maybe a little closer to home, you don't necessarily rebuke something or bind something or command something or speak to something 
unless the Lord's unction through the Holy Spirit is on it in directing you to do that. Otherwise, it's just a formula. Now, there is a place for simple obedience. Lay hands on the sick and they recover. So there's a place for strict obedience. We call for the sick to come forward every week. We lay hands upon them because as a matter of obedience, uh, that's not formulaic. But the appeal from Jesus here is to partner with the Holy Spirit in each ministry situation. Now, the healing of the Gentile woman's daughter and the healing of the Gentile deaf man are fully prophetic. They anticipate the great commission that Mark will share with us in chapter 16. When Jesus' followers are to go into all the world, not just to the Jews, but to the Gentiles as well, with the good news of the kingdom. Now, as Mark 8 opens, we read an account of yet another miraculous feeding, this time of 4,000 people. The key difference is that Jesus is now in Gentile territory, that what he had done for the Jews, God's elect, in the feeding of the 5,000 recorded for us in Mark 6, he's now going to do for the Gentiles in Mark 8. And the point that he's making, I believe, is that everybody is welcome in the kingdom. Everyone's needs can be met in abundance. No one is excluded for any reason. It's not just God's elect. It's for everybody. You see, that crowd in in Mark 8 would have included people from every place and station in life. Gentiles, mixed races, uh, different religious persuasions. Some were, were no doubt uh, pagan idolaters, every level of education, every occupation, every kind of sordid background and history. It was a really mixed bag. And Jesus was forming the miracle for them. All are included. And I think it's interesting, too, that Jesus wanted to meet not just their spiritual needs, but their material and physical needs as well. So now, perhaps you or someone you love, or maybe one of the five friends that you're praying for, a neighbor, a coworker, or a classmate, feels particularly unworthy or unacceptable to God because of mistakes of judgment that you've made, or some besetting sin, or maybe even some habit yet today. I happen to think that this second miracle of the multiplication of food cuts to the heart of that belief. Jesus is for everyone. Jewish insider, Gentile outsider. The least, the last, the lost. The down and outers, the up and outers, and everyone in between. The prodigals, that is, those who grew up in church but have lost their faith after being a Christian at some point in their past, they've walked away. Or maybe the nomads, those would be people who still identify themselves as Christians but have very little to do with institutional church, having judged it as primarily hypocritical. Or the exiles, they're the people who still identify themselves as a Christ follower, but they're kind of like caught between the the, the church of their their upbringing and, and a desire to still influence culture as salt and light. But, but they're kind of like in exile from institutional religion. 
Jesus is for everybody. And this miraculous story of God's provision teaches a powerful lesson that the kingdom is for all. It's beautiful. Anyone who's willing to follow the radical Jesus. I love how we'll, we'll sing this, the powerful song today in worship that, that, uh, it's titled, What Can I Bring by Jeremy Riddle and, and the, the, the anthem, the, re, the refrain we will sing is, you've rescued me from death. You've, you've given me your kingdom and you've, uh, blessed me with your love, countless mercies from above. That, that message can be the song that every one of you sings personally. Every one of your friends or your loved ones that feels alienated or estranged from God in any way because of our past performance can sing that song. Another song we'll sing is, All Who Are Thirsty. Anybody who's thirsty for the living God can come and drink. There are no boundary markers that keep you away. There's no list of sin that keeps you away. There's no place and station in life, no litany of past judgments and mistakes that you've made that can keep you from experiencing the love of Jesus. His desire to bring his kingdom to you. And not just interested in your soul and spirit. We are integrated beings. because, And if Jesus just came to save our soul, spirit, he would miss most of us. But he comes to redeem our, our whole uh, spirit, soul, mind, body, will, emotions, conscience, imagination, self-image, and past. It's all redeemed as Jesus comes to claim you again. There's no part of your life past, present, or future, that, that is excluded from Jesus. His kingdom breaks in. He wants to reclaim our whole life. So I ask, do I or someone that I know and love still feel excluded from God's kingdom? And is there any part of my life that still yet needs Jesus' touch? In Mark 8, 11 to 21, Jesus continued being hounded by the Pharisees. They now reappear as they were wont to do. They questioned Jesus, the text reads, in order to test him. Hopefully, getting him to disprove his claims of speaking for God and being divine. They supposed that if he were the true Messiah, he would perform a miraculous sign to authenticate to them as who he really was. They were, they were hoping that like Elijah, he would call fire down from heaven. And then if Jesus would perform such a miracle uh, on demand, then they would really believe. Now, behind their request, we sense the lurking presence of Satan who tested Jesus in this same regard in his 40 days in the wilderness. And why they had yet refused to believe the hundreds of miracles that Jesus had already done, the text uh, is silent about. We, it remains puzzling. But Jesus' response teaches us that he is not on demand. We have no right to demand things from Jesus. We're to ask boldly and fearlessly and fervently, and we're to be uh, holding on perseveringly and, and unswervingly. And yet ours is to ask, his is to answer in his own sovereign time, in his own sovereign way. And I think we do well to exercise caution when we expect signs and wonders on demand. Now, some today teach that full healing and full provision 
like full salvation, are in the atonement. And therefore, all we need to do is appropriate or claim them. They say all we need to do is believe and receive. And if we don't get what we want, it's not because God withholds, but because we just simply don't have enough faith to appropriate these blessings. And we can actually make demands on him because he has to come through because of what he's promised. But And I would ask, is this biblical faith? I would suggest not. Jesus teaches that healing and provision are in the kingdom. The kingdom, as we've been learning, is here. It's already here, but it's not yet all the way here. We live in what we would now call the overlapping of two ages, this present evil age and the future age to come. We live in an absolutely unique time in all of human history. And Jesus came bringing his kingdom. And in this sense, it's already here. But it is still coming. Uh, it's still advancing. It's still growing like that tiny mustard seed that will grow to eventually become the largest tree in the garden. It is still growing like the yeast that is working its way through the loaf of bread until the whole bushel gets uh, the whole loaf of bread uh, is leavened. And in this sense, it's here, but it's not all the way here. It's not all the way here like it will be on the day when Jesus returns in all of his glory and the kingdom is summed up or completed or consummated. So. Until that day, we still live in a a broken and fallen world that is under the control of the evil one. And there will remain sickness and disease and brokenness and despair and corruption and injustice and pain and suffering. I think the lesson is this. We are to pray, expecting the kingdom to break through. We're to remain confident and hopeful and desirous, but we're not to over-promise. That is to say, Jesus didn't say every sickness would be healed or that every prayer would be answered. And in this sense, Jesus is not going to perform a sign or a wonder or a miracle on demand. Now, Jesus and his disciples withdrew from Galilee into Gentile territory, this time heading north around the village of Caesarea Philippi. Herod the Great's son, Philip, had renamed the city in honor of Augustus Caesar. And as they traveled, Jesus asked them a general question. Don't you find it amazing that Jesus is always asking questions? He seldom answers them, but he asks a lot. Chapter 8, verse 27, who do people say that I am? Now, the disciples think that he's pulling them for the crowd response, after all. You know, there's been quite a buzz going around. It's mixed with rumor and gossip as well. And so they answer, well, some say John the Baptist, perhaps connecting Jesus's call to repentance to John the Baptist's call at the same time. Others say Elijah. He was the miracle worker who was prophesied to to appear before the return of the Lord, the great and coming day of the Lord. And still others said you are one of the prophets, which was the general public consensus. But Jesus really isn't interested in public opinion because he says in verse 29, but who do you say that I am? Jesus always takes our theological, philosophical, existential questions that are floating about three feet above our head, and he drills them right down where we live. 
exposing our true hearts for what they are. Who do you say that I am? Who do you say that Jesus is? What do you do with the historical death and resurrection of Jesus? Why haven't you fully surrendered your life to Jesus? Why haven't you followed his call to followership? Those are the questions that he he drills down and, and makes us come face to face with. Well, Peter replied, on behalf of the group, you're the Messiah. Now, this is the crucial climax of the first eight chapters of the Gospel of Mark. The evidence is in. The revelation has been given. Jesus is the Messiah. He is the Davidic warrior king who the prophets promised would come at the end of this present evil age to establish God's rule, his peace, his blessings, his righteousness, just like what occurred under the reigns of kings David and Solomon. Jesus is the warrior king who's going to displace all of Israel's oppressors as God comes to live among his people at the end of the age. Once again, all other kings, including Caesar, will be dethroned. And so as you see, even the geographic context of Peter's confession is both radical and revolutionary because uh, Peter is, is, is standing there in the shadow of Caesarea Philippi imagining uh, that, that the revolution is going to begin. He's confessing Christ is king right there in Caesar's city. Mark notes this with, with, with no uh, like fanfare, although it catches the reader's attention. Peter and the rest are now supposing that the revolution is going to begin right here in the king's city. Blood is going to begin to flow and Rome will be expelled. But this is not what is actually going to happen. It's not Caesar's blood that's going to flow. Rather, it's Jesus who will die. And so now at this climactic moment, the mountain peak of Mark's gospel, Jesus reveals an essential part of his identity and his destiny. Now, remember, we've already seen, and the disciples understood in a a fundamental way that he's the messianic king. He has cast out demons. He has healed the sick. He's calmed the storm. He's even raised the dead. He's taught his authority over the conventional rules of piety and piousness and the Sabbath. Uh, He is step-by-step restored fallen creation, both people and creation itself. He is restoring all things. He is setting the world to right. He has come to take back everything from the devil, the usurper. He has plundered the strong man's house and is reclaiming men, women, and children for the sake of God's kingdom. But the surprise of surprises is now coming. And it's that his ultimate victory is going to go through Calvary in Jerusalem. Jesus does come to reign, but he only is going to reign through rejection, suffering, and death. And this is the paradox of the gospel. Verse 31, Mark says that Jesus began to teach them about his suffering. And then the balance of chapter 8 is one of three passion predictions that Jesus will make in the next eight chapters. And he uses here, for the first time, the messianic term, the Son of Man, which actually is a quotation from the prophet Daniel in the seventh chapter. And Jesus 
in this term connects his identity and his destiny as the Messiah with suffering, Isaiah 52 and 53. And it is only through suffering and death that the kingdom will fully come. Now, from this point on in the Gospel of Mark, uh, the preoccupation is going to be upon Jesus' rejection, suffering, and death. Climbing up the mountain to chapter 8, he was Jesus the warrior king. Descending the mountain to its climactic conclusion in the in the uh, crucifixion and resurrection, Jesus is the suffering servant. He promises that after his bloody death, will be he'll be resurrected. And at this point in the story, this promise is utterly incomprehensible to the disciples. You see, for the Jew, the resurrection, which they did believe, was corporate. We were all going to be raised simultaneously, and it was at the end of the age. There was no expectation of an individual resurrection in the middle of time, like Jesus was prophesying. And it was as if in the hearing of the disciples, Jesus was speaking a foreign language. And we're going to see him unpack it for the next eight chapters. And so it's in this context that Jesus now reinvites the twelve to full followership. Verse 34, if any of you wants to be my follower, you must turn from your selfish ways, take up your cross, and follow me. If you try to hang on to your life, you'll lose it. But if you give up your life for my sake and the sake of the good news, you'll save it. And what do you benefit if you gain the whole world but lose your soul, your life? Is anything worth more than your life, your soul? If anyone's ashamed of me and my message in these adulterous and sinful days, the Son of Man will be ashamed of that person when he returns in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. It's as if Jesus was saying, okay, guys, are you really sure you want to follow me? Because we're going to die. Deny yourself, take up the cross, and follow me. This is where we're going. And his invitation to us is the same. The stakes now are much higher. Followers of Christ must give up their sinful, selfish, self-centered ways and be willing to embrace his call as unto death. And so Jesus now reissues this invitation. Are you still willing to go with me? He issues us the same invitation. In closing, I'd like to read a commentary on this passage by a vineyard theologian and scholar, Don Williams. And he writes, you know, so many of us want a triumphalist Christianity. We want to be among the winners, not the losers. We want big, successful churches. We want overpowering arguments for the gospel. We want money and fame, certainly to justify Jesus and our faith in him. But what about the cross? What about his suffering love? Are we willing to be embraced by him, bleeding and abandoned? As Jesus prophesies his death and resurrection, we are in the kingdom tension at its most extreme point in Mark 8. The already and the not yet, the kingdom come and coming in our Lord's death, sin is canceled. Satan's rule is broken. We, we are not yet raised from the dead with Jesus. And so we carry about his death while we experience the fruit of his resurrection and wait for his appearing.
Yes, we have new life. Yes, the kingdom is upon us. But no, not everything is consummated. Sin and the weakness of our flesh still stalk us. Satan, our defeated enemy, still has power in this world and hates Jesus and his followers. And so Jesus now weds his cross to his kingdom power. And this is the power of suffering love. This is the power of his substitutionary atonement. This is the power of our absolute dependence upon him and our surrender to him. Why make such a surrender to the radical Jesus? Because it's worth it. Lord, I pray that you would help each one of us surrender to your call to follow you. Lord, we don't take the call lightly because it's a call to come and die, to give up our life for yours. And we understand it's a call uh, to embrace the, the gospel of the kingdom, which is already here, but not yet all the way here. You said, as the teacher is, so will the students be. And so, Lord, it, it's with a degree of humility and yet gratefulness that we, we say we want to follow you. Help us, Lord, to follow you more fully and completely. Even today, as we worship you with these tithes and offerings, as we worship you in song and celebrate the communion, we, we pray that you take all three of these, Lord, as tokens that we want our life to count for you. And we're no more aware than we've ever been, Lord, of how much we need you in order to fulfill those commitments. Put your power on these acts of worship today is our prayer in your name. Amen.